Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president of ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Dr. Nicole Williams and Dr. Ashley Shater from the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, or BHCOE for short, to talk about the amazing ways an ABA therapy program and an IEP can work together to help children with autism learn. I'm sure we're going to learn a lot today from Dr. Williams and Dr. Shader. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I I know from the BHCOE perspective is the integration of care across all stakeholders is, is such a pivotal part to any sort of model of treatment, especially for school-aged children. And I'd love to hear, before we go into defining an IEP and getting into the specifics, maybe, Nikki, you could give me a story and put it into context of a time where you saw these pieces come together, where you saw a teacher, a school district, a family, an ABA provider all work together in the best interest of a child. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really um, important that we have collaboration across all providers that are working with students. Um, so I know prior to joining the BHCOE, I was a consultant for an organization and we did a lot of school consultation. So I would see um, patients or students in the home, but then also work with the school. And one of the most important pieces was collaboration during ETR meetings and IEP meetings. Um, and I think it's really important because as you know, one of the things that our students might struggle with is that generalization of their skills. So they might be working on something at home um, and then working on something similar at school, but it's just not generalized into those other environments. And so one of the um, biggest pieces of what my responsibility was, was to collaborate with schools so that we could work on generalization across skills, across those environments. Um, and that was really important to increase those outcomes for our students so that they could not only um, generalize those skills, but then maintain it across time in other environments. And that's why I think it's extremely relevant and important that we do collaborate with schools um, as BCBAs if we're working with a student who is attending a general education classroom or even a private school um, to really work on that to enhance their skill set um, outside of one environment. No, absolutely. And and I've heard stories from families and I've seen it firsthand where you could even get not even into the school doors and the behaviors are occurring. It's a child who maybe is unable to get onto a bus and you need to have, how do you help the family? How do you help the school? And it seems like the logical thing is coordinating that care, coordinating and being consistent. And what you end up seeing is that eventually that child's able to get onto the bus. They're able to enter into the school. There's no aggression if that was the problem, being able to make that transition. Are there other specific stories that you that you remember? I mean, whether it's an eating plan for a child in school or being able to engage with peers that that kind of comes to mind. And maybe, Ashley, you can give me an example of, of something you've seen historically on this. So I have a little bit of a unique experience working within the school systems. Um, 
one of those was working with individuals who engaged in pretty significant and challenging behavior. And they had been um, essentially kicked out of their home school and even bounced around within the school districts to different placements. And the one thing that was kind of the, the highlight for me, it was being able to get them reintegrated back into their home school and their home district. So um, had folks who would be removed and, and placed into like an, an emotional impairment school specifically and working with them on emotional regulation um, and self-control and self-management skills that they didn't necessarily have and even improving their GPA while in that school system to get them back and make sure that they were successful. Yeah, I mean, and that seems to me like when you're talking about being removed from a community, not having a vehicle to get back and contribute with your peer set and to actually have fulfillment in those relationships, that's gotta be hard in the family. It's gotta be extremely hard on that child. Um, what sort of what sort of treatments and maybe I'll talk about ABA specific in this case that you're talking about, Ashley, because this is a good example is you have somebody who's removed temporarily. So how does the treatment plan? How does that integrate to refocus goals so that somebody can get back to a normalized education environment? Is there is there a treatment team? Is there a process to this? Yeah, so there definitely should be a team in place. Um, and one way is to work as as a collaborative unit together. Transparency is, is very important in the success of that child and that student. So being able to be an open book with each other and what sort of interventions you're gonna put in place is really important um, and key. So we want them to go back into and reintegrate into that that less restrictive environment because that is ultimately where we want to see them be. Um, we want to work on those adaptive independent skills and um, the only way to do that is to work together as that collective mm -hmm. unit. Yeah, and oftentimes I would admit I just there's this separation, there's this gap between what's a behavioral cause or or maybe access to peers or social emotional behaviors, and then what's an education goal. And it seems like this blending needs to be addressed during the, potentially the IEP process or or that. And I guess before we even get there. It would be nice if maybe Nikki, you could just give us the basics of, you know, what is that individualized education plan? Because it seems like it bridges a lot of gaps. There's a lot of players at the table. Oh, absolutely. Um, so with an IEP, it's really just a document that meets a child's individual needs. Um, and it speci specifically outlines special education services that a child must receive. Um, and so there's a couple purposes for it. One of them is just similar to what Ashley's talking about, those individualized goals. So we need to make sure that we have reasonable learning goals for the student, and that can include academic goals, but it can also include behavioral goals, social goals, and other aspects um, of the student's educational plan. And I think that that's important too, because oftentimes when we think about IEP, we might only think about academics, um, and really it goes beyond that. And then additionally to that, it can talk about 
um, a variety of other related services that the student might receive. So that could be um, speech therapy, occupational therapy, um, if they need any other types of like assistive technology. There's a lot of moving pieces that comes into play when we talk about an IEP. Um, but I think before we even get to the IEP, it's really important for families to know if they don't have that already, that it's a process in which you can obtain it. So um, just because a student has a disability, so just because they are diagnosed with autism or ADHD, to give a couple examples, that doesn't mean that they will qualify for special ed education services. So you have to start with that um, evaluation team reports, so that ETR first. Um, to see if they do qualify for one of the disability categories, which then in return would um, give them access to an IEP. Yeah, and my heart breaks for the families that maybe have experienced similar to what Ashley was talking about, where maybe we waited a little bit too, too long to get into that process, or we waited for this huge event, and now it's a crisis. Mm -hmm. You seem to be describing is that, you know, there's a way to initiate this process. What would you be advising families about either identifying that need or teachers even how they can help to initiate this process? Because the last thing we'd want mm -hmm. is to remove a child, hit crisis, and now we're dealing with bigger problems. So Nikki, when you describe the IEP process, how does that get initiated? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, basically, any students between the ages of 3 to 21, if they have a disability or if the families feel as if they do have a disability, um, that doesn't mean that they will qualify for special education services, but what they can do from a family's point of view is they can reach out to either their teacher, the school administrator, uh, the school administrator, um, the school psychologist, and just let them know that they feel as if their child should be evaluated due to a variety of concerns, whether it's those academic concerns, whether, whether it's their behavioral concerns, um, and then the school has to respond. Um, so they do have... Um, Legally, they have 30 days to respond to that, um, and they can either decide if they're going to move forward with an evaluation or if they are going to um, not move forward due to, you know, whether they don't have enough data or whether the student's disability does not um, impact their educational performance. So that's one way in which they can go about it. So it's truly just writing an email, giving a phone call to the school and letting them know that they do have concerns and they would like their child to be evaluated. Then the other way is child fines. So schools are responsible. Um, to identify those students that need additional supports. And many schools I know have different types of student support systems um, or different teams in which they might meet on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly basis on students who maybe need additional support, whether it's academics, whether it's behaviorally, socially. Um, and then basically based off of that, they might move forward with the evaluation. So those are some of the two ways in which you can start that process. Either the family is reaching out to the school and identifying specific needs that their child might have um, or the school could then reach out to families and let them know, um, you know, due to the following factors, we would like to move forward with an evaluation. And then after the ETR meeting happens and after the student either qualifies or does not qualify, that's when the IEP would be developed. With a child with autism, it, most of the re research would indicate that you need to be able to get in and provide services early. You need to change a trajectory of the way that they're learning a lot of the new skills and help them to develop those so that the way they integrate with the world is that they can they can do it in a way where they're using all these pro-social skills um, versus developing coping mechanisms. Um, is that the same process that you'd be looking at as an IEP at a school where, you know, you're trying to make sure you're providing enough care in the beginning rather than doing the minimal amount just to get somebody by. 
Should a team be looking at the entire picture, a holistic model? Are they bringing everyone to the table right in the beginning to make sure that they're getting all those ideas and brains working together? Oh, I certainly hope so. So um, it it is really important, as Nikki was describing, to really start off the process as early as, as possible. And you want to have as many uh, individuals that are are going to be supportive to the student as possible in that IEP development and that process entirely. So, um, because it is at the end of the day about what is in the best interest of the student. So sometimes we have to put kind of differences aside and really work together and again, collaborate with each other. And one thing is, because this can be fairly tricky on how we even integrate behavior analysts into the, the process, and hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit more, but um, different service providers are often siloed from each other, meaning they don't really get to interact all too often, and that can really lead to a disjointed person-centered planning approach um, and a lot of conflicting interventions between those disciplines and those providers. So it's really important that um, the family and the student themselves advocates for all of those members to be in the same room with each other, regardless of whether or not um, a certain provider is going to be providing services in the school setting. Um, and that, again, is involves a lot of processes. There has to be releases of information that are signed for um, folks to be able to do that. But when you do, those members are actually able to communicate with each other and improve the effectiveness of the service delivery for that student. Now, the way that you describe that and you're looking at how this could potentially be such a siloed way of treating um, and that the only way to avoid that is to bring everybody to the table and make sure that you're providing consistency, which could be the key ingredient to appropriate care, is consistency across all these providers. It sounds like the IEP process is the most valuable piece to that, to make sure that we have integrated goals. We have a way that we're actually working through these goals where we have consistency and implementation, even if our language is different, that there's implementation consistency. Um, I do want to go back because this is the second time that I've that I've now heard that you do want to be able to get that child into the IEP process as young as possible. But that's the same for the ABA world. A lot of children is that you're trying to be able to help them access care um, as soon as a diagnosis can be delivered so that you can start to work early. And a lot of these children have been working with an ABA team for quite a while before they enter into a school. Some states is that maybe they're not entering school until they're six years old. Others might have it at four. So, I mean, you you have variants, but how do you integrate all that work that's been done on a transition into school? How does the ABA team work with a school team? And maybe Nikki, you can give me some guidance on this. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Um, and one that's oftentimes asked uh, from clinicians too, is how can we get everybody involved? Specifically, if a student is receiving early intervention services, you know, they might begin ABA at age two or three, but like you mentioned, not start um, education until a, a later time. And so I think that the first part to get them involved is through that IEP process. So with having a BCBA working collaboratively with the school staff, 
they can not only help with that goal development with training staff too, right? So oftentimes if a student's going into um, an educational setting and they received ABA services prior to that, they already have a behavior plan in place. Um, and we're hopefully hope and we're hopeful that that's effective um, at home and not in the community. So we want to make sure that that can also be effective in the school. So one of the ways in which the BCBA can kind of be integrated into that IEP process and receive some of those um, behavior analytic services in the school is by training the staff on the behavior plans um, and additionally providing effective strategies that they can be used. So one of the things that a BCBA could do is provide additional recommendations on accommodations that might benefit the student. So within an IEP, there's an accommodation section that is outlining what additional strategies might be helpful for the student in order to let them access the same curriculum, the same learning environment of their peers. And a BCBA can really help with that. So they can provide a variety of antecedent interventions. Um, and those are simply just different interventions and strategies that can be implemented prior to a student engaging in an inappropriate behavior. So we can work collaboratively in identifying additional modifications that can be um, included too if the curriculum needs to be changed a little bit as well as those accommodations that would benefit the students. And what's really nice is like Ashley said, there are a lot of hoops you have to jump into. So if a BCBA or um, another behavior analytics staff member is going to be collaborating with the school, outside of the parents um, being present in an IEP meeting, you do have to get those releases of information. So I highly recommend that right when a student starts school that we're doing that. And oftentimes it's not only the organization in which the students receiving ABA services from, but it's also the school has one that has to be signed. So it's important to get that signed um, from the beginning so that you can share reports, you can communicate directly with them. And then after that consent and the documentations have been signed, we really just encourage the BCBAs to collaborate on a pretty consistent basis with the school in order to, like I mentioned before, get those different goals generalized across both the home, the school, and the community environment, but then also provide support as needed. Um, unfortunately, there are not many districts that have BCBAs on staff um, or even behavioral consultants. So I think that's another key aspect too, is that if you are receiving outside services, it's really great to get them in the school to be able to provide that additional support, working on consistency and, and letting teachers know. I think that's one of the hardest parts too. When I worked in schools, um, as a consultant for families, most schools um, would get a little intimidated, right? I'm going in there, they're, they're feeling as if they're going to be judged the entire time when they're providing services to the student. And that's not the point. The point is just to be able to provide additional environmental recommendations that will help not only support the student, but also make things easier on the teacher or if there's aides and paraprofessionals in the classroom too. So I think that that's really important to stress is we're not here to tell you you know how to do your job or that you're doing your job poorly we're just here to provide recommendations because at the end of the day we do want to provide the most effective services to students um, regardless of what setting they're in so that's just a couple of different ways in which we can really incorporate bcbas um, and other behavioral analytics staff in the schools in order to help increase those clinical outcomes for students and having that background and that firsthand experience is probably very important as you're coaching and evaluating other providers is helping them to see is that it's not an all or one model, is that you can go in there and consult and rely on other people to utilize your plans. And it doesn't always have to be your direct care team in there, is that use what's available, use the vehicles are there. Do you have an example, potentially, Nikki, of, of maybe when you were consulting historically about just that nuance of, you know, I didn't need all of my staff in there. 
but this school needed my plan. Do you have a student in mind that, that you know, this, this hits me, like it does work. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the one of the biggest pieces that I worked with a lot uh, with a particular middle elementary school student was his social interactions. So they were very much uh, socially inappropriate for um, the classroom. And so one of the things that I really wanted to promote is how can we teach the not only teachers, staff and students to place different behaviors on extinction. So we want to kind of withhold that reinforcement to something. So this student um, liked to make his peers laugh and would say things that were extremely inappropriate or um, offensive, but unfortunately all the kids always laughed. So he just ate that up. So it was them reinforcing this inappropriate behavior and teachers just didn't know what to do. So they just kept on drawing additional attention to it and he was eating it up. Um, and so it was one of those things that we just had to go in and, and teach not only the teachers, but then do some different social skills, lessons with peers as well. So we talked a lot about we would use a variety of tools. So we would um, use diff different types of modeling. We would use visual schedules um, and different types of social stories to basically discuss what is, what is appropriate, what is not, and, and how to react to those. And that was something that, although the teacher thought, you know, oh, we're we're giving them this negative attention. He doesn't like it. Actually, we were just positively reinforcing him. Um, and so I went in and I did a, a couple different trainings with the school staff on that. And then we just did some very um, age-appropriate lessons with students on how do we react uh, when these situations might might occur. And it was pretty effective in not only giving the teacher support, but then they also felt as if, okay, I, I can do this. I have control over my classroom again, because sometimes too, we just get a little overwhelmed. And when these different behaviors happen in the classroom, we are also taking time away from direct instruction or direct educational um, for all of the students. And so it was just kind of ways in which we could promote that collaboration, promote the um, additional socially appropriate behaviors, not only with our targeted student, but also all the peers in the classroom. So I would say that that's um, a pretty common one that I would go in and, and work on. Um, and I don't know if Ashley has any other examples that she'd like to add. Did you have any, Ashley, that you could think about? As Nikki was describing hers, I'm just thinking about, you know, in my in my mind here, I'm watching this classroom and I'm seeing this downward spiral going as, as the child is getting more and more excited about, you know, their antics basically being approved by everybody but the teacher um, and it just losing control. Do you have an example, Ashley, of, of maybe of a time where, you know, the consultation alone wouldn't work? It it is tricky depending on the state that you're in and the funding mechanism that's supporting um, those services. But there's been moments where, um, so either myself and then I had a, a trainee with me who, who served as kind of that um, paraprofessional, would go in and work on uh, language acquisition with a student who, had pretty significant um, language deficits. So really wanted to enhance that functional communication for that individual so that they could gain access to all their wants and their needs um, throughout the day and to help them kind of gain access to more of that, those learning activities that the teacher was trying to provide on a regular basis. Um, and so that did take extra people to come in and actually work with that um, 
that student. So yes, it, it can work really well together where you can bring in those other situations. Like I said, working with very challenging behavior is having um, my team come in and work with that individual because sometimes um, things get worse before they get better. <laughs> Um, especially when you're, you've seen this person who's done these things for so long, they're so used to, that's their, their habit. Um, and if you think about some of the habits that you have, they're really hard to break. Oh, yeah. um, even though you know it's really good to get yourself out of that pattern. So we would have my team go in once I would develop a recommendation of, okay, now my staff is going to weather the storm for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it, it helps to have that happen. So the, the teachers and the other professionals that are working with the student aren't discouraged um, by the whole process because there, it, it does sometimes does get worse. So, that team is there to support not only the teacher and the other professionals in the room and the other students, but also work specifically with that, that student to help them. No, and it's, it's so needed at times is that oftentimes is that you need to have that direct support in order to get past those first hurdles of any sort of behavior. And for a teacher to try and do that while managing other 30 other children is, is sometimes something that's just not possible. So I could un I understand and I empathize with that situation. But you did mention the funding mechanism. So I'm going to I'm going to wade into that muddy water. Um, and so there there is a gap. I mean, the way that you look at funding in general is that oftentimes insurance based funding would be looking at behavioral health needs, school based funding are looking at academic needs. So when you're talking about bridging the gap between ABA and I and, and IEP process, how do you make sure both needs are met? And to talk about what Nikki was talking about earlier about generalizing all of this, how do you make sure that both needs are met and skills are generalized across both settings? So Ashley, maybe you can kind of give us some direction of you have two funding entities, they're not paying for those other services, but we need integration. So how does that work? Oh boy, that's so tricky. So every, like I said, every state is different. Um, and there are some states where behavior analysts are easily integrated within the school system. There is a funding mechanism. Some there's not, and it becomes very challenging. Um, but what I can say is that families, schools, and even the behavior analysts should really look into, especially if they have a, a case manager that's working with the student, is really looking into grants that might help support the services that are being provided or waivers that are being provided that they can apply for to really help integrate that. But I know a lot of behavior analysts, including myself, who just did it because it is best practice and that's what we do. We didn't care about necessarily being reimbursed for that um, but we knew it was important the school knew it was important and the family knew it was important to have us there in the room because they wanted us to all be on the same page and to be able to collaborate and work together um, so that advocate and don't hesitate to reach out to support um, groups and um, 
centers that specialize in working with individuals with disabilities and their family members because you are able to kind of gain access and they know how to navigate those muddy waters mm -hmm. um, for you and to help kind of push and pursue and, and um, kind of advocate for for changes in policy so it does make um, it a little bit easier for a student to get the services that they do need that they're not able to otherwise receive because of those barriers in place. And I appreciate the emphasis that you put on advocating. Um, oftentimes is that we perceive a barrier, so we stop. And the only way to kind of push that water to get clarity and definition behind, okay, so what should we, what can we do? What's in the best interest of the child here is to make sure that the parent is there to advocate for that, is that the school team and the, and the teacher can advocate for that need, that the clinician can advocate for the need for continuity. And without those voices in the process, and it sounds like the IEP is the greatest place to be able to have that, that space in that free open dialogue, is that you end up maybe taking a step backwards in treatment, maybe not giving all you can to the child just because you perceive you can't or shouldn't be doing something instead of looking at what's really needed. Um, now, I have a question, and, and Nikki, uh, you all at the BHCOE have been accrediting different providers over the years, but I, you also educate. I know that that's a big part of what you all are doing is making sure that everybody has the ability and the tools to understand how they can do their job and what they can do to empower clinicians in the field to do the right clinical work. Is there anything out there that the BHCO is doing right now around schools, around being able to help that integration and collaboration of care? Yeah, actually, um, and I don't know if I want to kind of pass this off to, to Ashley if she has a little bit more information on this just because I've been gone for a few weeks. Um, but Absolutely. That's something that we're looking at. So with BHCOE, we're not only looking at um, individual organizations providing quality of care, but we're also looking at other other entities and one of them being school based standards. So what does that look like for schools, whether it's a public school, whether it's a private school? Um, but how are they basically incorporating behavior analytic techniques, strategies in the school system um, and being able to work collaboratively with other entities. So whether it's an outside organization. Um, Ashley, do you have any? Uh, I, I do, actually. I'm uh, very excited to say that BHCOE is moving forward with developing school standards for behavior analysts who are providing school-based ABA services whether that's them um, going into a school district and consulting within classrooms or their ABA organizations that have school-based programs at their own centers. But um, we, we are developing those standards uh, and we hope that um, providers who are, are providing that sort of uh, service want to pursue that so they can really showcase their commitment to high quality ABA services within the school setting. That's such a needed service. And I, I think that we oftentimes as, as behavior analysts in the field in general, there's a lot thrown at us. And in order to do things right, it's nice to kind of have that guiding star to say, hey, you know what, these are the things to make sure are part of your program. So I appreciate the fact that this exists. 
And hopefully, um, I, I'm not aware of what's in it, but hopefully it's focusing on how can we make sure that things are integrated well and that the child is the focus of care and that you can integrate beyond that. Um, in the meantime, uh, we don't have something like that. And we we rely on parents. And I think that the one thing that I'd like to, I guess, hear from your point of view is what should we be telling parents right now on that advocating process or on that ability to know, you know, is my provider doing the right thing? Um, what are the things that you'd be recommending to them that they're at least asking? And maybe Ashley, you can you can start us off and Nikki, you can provide some insight as well afterwards. Oh boy. So um, one is for families and for the learners themselves, know your rights, know the students' rights. Um, it can be really daunting and overwhelming, especially when you're you're trying to get support services for a student. Um, but know your rights. And something that I, I like to tell um, any families or caregivers that are working with an individual is don't be afraid to roar. Um, it's sometimes necessary to, to get people to move in a direction that is much needed for the student that you're working with. So um, you know, as the, the family member um, and as that person's advocate, you know them best. So reaching out to those support groups, um, working with those family centers is really going to help you to move in a direction. And uh, don't be afraid to, to be a pest to be that fly that's kind of nagging at them because again, that is the best way to, to be an advocate for your loved one. Yeah, that accountability factor I think is so important. But uh, your advice on roaring, I agree with. I think that it, it's such an emotional process and we always try and take that step back and be like, well, I don't want to ruffle the feathers. These are the people that are gonna take care of my child every day. I can't upset them right now. But at the same time is you can roar in a way that people are going to hear you. That's not offensive. That's just telling them that this is where my passion is. This is where I care. Um, and it does make a difference. Um, what would you say, Nikki, are, are kind of the keys for a family as they're looking at, am I getting what I need out of this uh, either ABA program in the school or the IEP process? What should they be looking at? Sure. So my number one thing is similar to what Ashley said, it's know your rights. So many families, I always promote that they are constantly reading IDEA, so the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, because it's really helpful in getting parents to understand basically the their child's rights when it comes to educational services and, and public education. And so that's the first thing. Always look it up. Um, there are a ton of family-friendly websites you can also just go to the Department of Education and they will provide you with a variety of resources as well. But that's the most important thing to know your rights. As much as we want schools to do the right thing, sometimes they won't be as transparent around the number of services that can be available. Um, and so that's kind of similar to what Ashley says is we really want families to advocate for themselves and for their child because they do know what's what's best for them. And so to constantly be checking in with schools. What's really great about the IEP and, and the team that's involved in that process is that an IEP meeting can be called at any time. So families have additional concerns around their behaviors, whether it's academically, socially, um, 
whatever kind of piece that is, they can always call an IEP meeting and they can get the team back together. And I think that that's important too, that you don't have to wait for that annual meeting. So an IEP must happen on an annual basis, but you can also call a meeting at any time. So when families feel as if maybe their child's not making enough progress or they have additional concerns about some aspect of their child's day, when they are in the educational setting, that they should call that meeting and get the team together so that collaboration can happen from the beginning instead of waiting for that next uh, annual meeting to happen. So I would say my biggest uh, pieces of feedback for families, but also just, I think from our point of view, Ashley and I, when we are consultants and we're working with families, um, to give them some compassion to it. These meetings can be extremely stressful. It can be overwhelming. Um, and so we're just here to support families as well as the schools in order to promote the most successful educational plan for that child. I, I think the more tools people have, the better off they're going to be. And sometimes we just don't realize that we have all these tools in our tool belt and we're leaving them unused. Um, and on that note, I don't want you all selling yourself short. So, I mean, you're building this tool. This tool isn't just going to be for the clinicians. I would imagine that parents want to know those standards. I would imagine schools want to know those standards. Everybody involved wants to know what it is that I need to be doing to be what would be an accredited organization or doing that gold standard of care. So where can people find out, A, about the BHCOE in general, but when are they going to start seeing updates about this new program? Sure. So um, I can kind of speak on on the first half of that. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about BHCOE, definitely check out our website, bhcoe.org. There's a variety of resources available um, for clinicians. Families can read up on different articles that have been posted as well, too. So that's a great resource. And then we're also on social media. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. In regard to the school standards, though, the baton will be passed again to Ashley, and she can share a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So... I would expect that you can start seeing some movement for school standards um, within the next couple of months, and especially as we start the new year. Well, I look forward to it, and I think it's such a valuable resource. I think any time where we can educate ourselves, it's it's a good thing. And there's there's only so much that you know in this field without reaching out and trying to gather more information. We all can get better. So. Um, Nikki, Ashley, I appreciate your time. I think that this is uh, very informative. I always feel like I learn so much whenever I do any of these talks. So thank you for sharing your information with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank <music> you.